Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 95, Pharmacy Benefit Managers and Automatic Denials. My guest, Julie Bach, will discuss pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs and automatic denials and how PBMs and automatic denials harm patients. Julie is the practice manager of the Arthritis Center in Bridgeton, Missouri, and an expert in rheumatology practice management. She has testified to the Missouri Senate Insurance Committee on Patient Access to Care. Julie has received a Changemaker Award from the American College of Rheumatology, has served as the chair of the Payer Committee at the National Organization of Rheumatology Management, and currently serves on the Coalition State Rheumatology Organization Payer Response Team. Julie Bach, Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. I'm delighted to be here this morning. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Thank you. I'd like to start just with a basic question, and that's what are your duties as practice manager? A practice manager has a wide variety of duties. In my office, the Arthritis Center, I'm in charge of the patient experience and the non-clinical team, so not the doctors, um, the support staff, and that's anything from having um, the right supplies to the bathroom monitor um, to making sure our patients have access to care. As I mentioned, we're going to discuss two topics, pharmacy benefit manager and automatic denials. I'd like to start with the pharmacy benefit managers and what do they do and do they do anything for patients? So uh, this is a topic I'm super passionate about. So your pharmacy benefit managers or PBM, now they've also coined a new phrase because they've gotten such a horrid reputation from PBMs that they're now um, did a name brand change to PBC, pharmacy benefit companies. From my eyes, the independent rheumatology practice manager office, and the patients I stand side by side with to advocate for access to care, pharmacy benefit managers don't do one single thing that's positive. What they're supposed to be doing, we would really need to ask um, J.C. Scott at PCMA, which is the pharmacy benefit managers uh, lobbyist group. They're very well-funded, highly opaque organization that essentially adjudicates pharmacy claims. But they have turned into this massive profit machine. All of the payers tend to have a, you will, a kiss and cousin pharmacy benefit manager. So you've got United Healthcare has OptumRx. Everybody's got one. And these are just opaque layers of bureaucrats that are essentially getting their piece of the pie. For the physician's office doing the work and the practice and the patients that stand with me. In our office, they don't want to use a pharmacy benefit manager. They want to choose their own pharmacy. So in rheumatology, we have a giant target on our backs because of the price of the drugs that we prescribe. I get that, okay? But these drugs give these patients their lives back. So when we get a stable patient and the doctor and the patient have worked together to be stable on drug symphony aria, 
And then pharmacy benefit manager comes in and says, for example, we've decided that we didn't cut a deal with J&J on Symphony Aria this year. So now you're going to do a non-medical switch to a different drug. Absolutely not. They have multiple layers, pharmacy benefit managers, non-medical switch, which is NMS, which is essentially a medical switch on a stable patient for only profit reasons, has nothing to do with clinical efficacy. So that's one of their levers. Another lever is a, an accumulator program, which drains the patient um, assistance funds from the manufacturer that harms patients. And another lever they have is their formulary, which I like to call the pay to play list. The formulary is changed as needed every time they cut a deal. It could be quarterly, it could be yearly, but the formulary is essentially you have pharma paying to play on the formulary list. So for example, if a rheumatology patient in a Medicare disadvantage plan, that's what I call Medicare Advantage plans as a disadvantage, what they do is they might say, oh, well, this patient needs to step through Embryol, Humira, and TALTS before they can go back on what you ever had them stable on. Not okay. There's so much to unpack there. So let's break it down a little bit. Okay. So what you're saying is that the pharmaceutical companies pay the PBMs to put their drugs on their formulary lists. Yep. And then they force the doctors to use those drugs before other drugs. Yep. And based on what you're saying, so you could have a patient in theory that's been stable on one drug that could even be cheaper And because it's not on the formulary list, the PBM is saying, oh, you have to use this other drug. Correct. You got it. Well, there's one thing there that just really infuriates me, and that's you have non-medical people overriding the medical decisions of a doctor, which is unfortunately common in many ways with our current healthcare system. Correct. But the other thing is, if you have patients that's stable on one drug, what can happen if they go to the other drug? So a lot can happen. And in rheumatology, when it's literally a trial and failure um, to see what's going to work for that individual patients. And these PBM formularies and insurance company formularies are essentially saying, you and I, Joe are the same, we get the same treatment. Despite the fact that you weigh a little bit more than I am, I do, they're saying one size fits all. So if I had a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis and you had a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis, we're going to both be put on the same, uh, the same dose of, of Embril. Okay. It's the efficacy may or may not work with your size versus my size. Um, but more importantly, when we find a drug that works for a patient, we don't ever make a non-medical switch anymore. Two times, Dr. Bach did it in 2019, two times. And the first thing I do is I get a directive from our doctors that say, this is what the plan is. And my job is to make sure that we get that done. I don't care what it is. I'm not a clinician. If they say Cosentex sub-Q, no problem. That patient's is stable on sub-Q, we get it done. So two tributaries here. Let's go off on the Cosentex sub-Q. In 2020, Novartis, the maker of Cosentex, 
threw down with Express Scripts, one of the big three PBMs. And Express Scripts said, you're not going to pay us, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Well, let's just for fun say it was a billion dollars, okay? I have no idea what it was, but it definitely had a ton of zeros in it, okay? Novartis said, you know what? We're not doing that. We're going to just not pay you and we're going to put our funds somewhere else. So then when our patients were stable on Cosentex in 2020, Express Scripts came out and said, okay, Dr. Bach, you want that patient to stay on this stable medicine? Here you go. Fill out this crap. 50 questions for one patient to not have to do a non-medical switch from Cosentex to whatever Express Scripts had cut a deal with that year. Guess who got those overridden? Me. Why? Because I am passionate about non, not making non-medical switches. That was one example. Another, and I have tons of receipts if you're, if you're a receipt dude, because I am all about the receipts. The other one is, you know, when they're, when they're, when we have a stable patient, this is a great story. This was a high mark insurance patient, one of our Blue Cross Blue Shield friends. In 2022, the beginning of last year in January, we had a high mark patient. Dr. Bach wanted to start her on a biosimilar which is a generic of Remicade, the branded medicine. There's a bunch of different generics out, but he decided with the patient that the patient should be on Renflexus. So we start the prior authorization permission slip to Highmark Insurance. They come back and say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want biosimilars. We want branded Remicade. Now, why do you suppose an insurance company would want a brand over a biosimilar to start? because it's on the pay to play list. So we start the patient per the Highmark Medical Director's directive on branded Remicade. The patient infuses all of 2022 is stable on branded Remicade. Guess what happens at the beginning of 2023? The pay to play list changes. Now they want the patient to do a non-medical switch. Are you ready? To Inflectra or Abzola. They choose the Biosim. We're all fine with biosimilars if it's a new start, but we're not going to yank patients on and off drug because somebody's going to make a buck. So what did we have to do? We had to throw down with Highmark. We did three appeals. We did a peer-to-peer, and I actually have a, our peer-to-peer call recorded, as does Highmark, with Dr. Bach on there and challenging him, saying, you're saying that you won't let the patient stay in your practice. No, that's not what he said. He said, I'm not making a non-medical switch. Once after we had that situation, we had to redact it. And where do we send it? To Twitter, the new prior authorization. Guess who capitulated rather quickly? The Highmark medical director. So those are a couple examples of how this game works. But one more, if you'd allow me, Joe. In 2020, Dr. Bach did two non-medical switches from stable patients to what the formulary wanted. They were both United Healthcare patients. If the patient doesn't want to advocate shoulder to shoulder with my office, then I write that whole case up and submit it to Dr. Bach. And he says yes or no to make the clinical change. Two patients wanted to do that. They wanted to go from branded Remicade to the pay to play list for a biosimilar. Both of those patients had such severe reactions in the infusion room that they, one of them had anaphylaxis. We had to stop the medicine. We had to pull out our emergency protocols, and 
Both of those patients, we filed med watches with the FDA. Like that's about as serious as things get. Those med watches with the FDA then became my new prior authorization for United Healthcare. Of course, they capitulated rather quickly on both of them and said, okay, okay, you're right. Go back to branded Remicade. Guess what happened, Joe, in both those cases? The patient tried to go back on Remicade and it didn't work. That is the classic story of how these non-medical switches work. Both of those patients had to be completely worked up from scratch, and now they can't go on any Remicade or Remicade biosimilar. So after those experiences, Dr. Bach said, do not bring me another non-medical switch. Fight them all the way. And here we are. So let me see if I've gotten this straight. What I'm hearing, and I don't know how common this is, maybe you can answer the question, but if somebody's on a biosimilar drug and they do a non-medical switch, what can happen is the other biosimilar drug doesn't work, but what can also happen if they go back to the biosimilar drug that was working, it may not work anymore. Is that what I'm hearing? That is what you're hearing. And in my experience, it happens north of 90% of the time. So the likelihood of that drug failing for that patient is very, very high. And the other thing, of course, when you're fighting these battles, the insurance companies are the PBMs aren't forced to compensate you for your time. Of course not. Of course not. But let's take this a step further, Joe, if I can, on these two non-medical switches that, that the patients agreed to do it and both had severe reactions. Understand who picked up the bill for that, okay? It's the employer and the patient. Because now on both of those cases, that employer was socked with a bill for a non-medical switch drug, Evzola or Inflectra, and back to the branded medicine, Remicade, and then those both failed again. And now we're on time number three or four, and we literally have to start over with both of those patients. So the employer in within days got to pay for multiple tries of biosimilar and the originator. PBMs walked away saying, eh, mermaid hair don't care. They're playing with house money, not their own. Well, the other thing that just makes me angry about this is aside that it increases expenses, we are, as I mentioned before, we are allowing insurance companies and sometimes people without medical training to make medical decisions. And in this case, as you said, in your experience, it's about 90%. It's not effective. So we're allowing them to make a medical decision that's going to hurt the patient. Now, I know you don't do that anymore. You fight in your practice. I have no idea what's going on in other practices. Well, as part of the all the independent rheumatology offices, I can tell you there's only a handful that have the time, the energy, the chutzpah um, to throw down with these people. They're all, we're all so overworked and understaffed um, I have 24 staff members to support one MD rheumatologist. That's extraordinarily, extraordinary amount of money and resources we spend on staff. And a whole lot of that is because of the prior authorization burdens that are put on my team. And 
we're, we're unique that we have that sort of bench strength. And we're also unique that I've got, I've got a little bit of experience in advocacy. And so I am going to take each one of these cases to the mat and we're going to do it one patient at a time. And because every single patient deserves to have the right treatment for the right patient. Yes. And unfortunately, though, that problem, and we'll get to that in our next part, but that problem where patients are denied the right care is a big problem. Almost every doctor or nurse say that denial of care is a big problem. And overriding medical decisions. As a brief aside, I'm not going to go into this, but I've done a couple podcasts on Medicare Advantage, and that's what I call it too, Medicare Disadvantage. Well, and I think, Joe, if I can just say one thing, everybody's a patient. You're a patient. I'm a patient. Everybody's a patient. And so when it happens to your family or your son, your daughter, your mother, all of a sudden you start saying, wow, this is so wrong. And that's where my passion comes in is I am, I am fighting and advocating for access to care for every one of our chronic patients. We're not curing disease in rheumatology. We're managing it. So we were talking about how these policies can harm patients by denying them care. And Recently, there was a report in ProPublica about how Cigna has automatically denies care. Yes. Could you please comment on that and explain to people what's going on? Sure. So for starters, let's not just uh, do Cigna bashing. It's all of them do it. So all the big players do it. I call it- Excuse me for a minute. So that's in your opinion and based on your experience? Based on my seven years of work in auto denials, which I call algorithm denials or algo denials, mm-hmm. yeah, um, we see 25 new patients a week in my clinic. I have over a thousand infusion patients. I know this business really well. So when I tell you that they all do algorithm denials and auto denials, I know what I'm talking about. My experience is huge in this space. Um, Most independent rheumatology offices or even a hospital-based rheumatology office, they're not seeing near the volume we are. And that's because we put it out there to our primary care referring doctors. If they have an acute new rheumatology referral and that patient really needs to be seen, they or their representative call my office. We're seeing that acute new patient in one to three days, unheard of in the industry. Our normal wait time is about three to four weeks but it is not uncommon to have wait times for new patients for rheumatology offices that are three, six, nine months. So I'm nimble. I know this business and I'm telling you, all of the big players do automatic algo denials. And if you read and study the ProPublica piece, what you're going to find is this is nothing but a little insurance company lever, okay, to increase their profits. If they can deny all of them on the first round, they've already published in the material that less than 5% of the doctor's offices and patients are going to ask for an appeal. Guess what? I'm in that 5%. I'm going to ask every single time. Offices don't have the time, the energy, or the bench strength 
to tangle with these people. So most of the time, they're just going to do what the insurance company wants. It's literally low-hanging fruit. They're literally, all these doctors want to do, they're trained to do is, is make clinical decisions. And so how many of them are going to throw down? And of course, as I mentioned before, when you fight the insurance companies, that is uncompensated time. So you have insurance companies who are overriding medical decisions, and they're not even using a doctor, any type of MD. They're just automatically denying it because something on the computer says, oh, we're going to deny this. I don't understand how we allow that to happen. I mean, to me, that just strikes me as fraud. They're not doing their contract, but I'm well, not a lawyer. Right. Um, neither am I, but they supposedly have a responsibility to their members. I say not so much. Okay. Algorithm denials are nothing more than um, some smart IT people working with some physicians. And if you read that article, the same physician, the same pediatrician that wrote the code for United Healthcare turned around and wrote the same damn code for, for Cigna. It's like, you want to talk about, you know, physician do no harm? Hmm. Me too. I can tell you that once we get the algorithm denial, and it doesn't matter what the medicine is, it could be on the pharmacy side, on the subcutaneous side, the self-administered drug for the patient. It can be on the IV side. It can be on the oral, the PO side. It doesn't matter. It's all getting denied. That's why it takes so many appeals. And, and you know, when you talk about you don't even have physicians um, reviewing the, med the, the materials, I mean, I can count on one hand how many peer-to-peers we've done with an insurance company rheumatologist. Rheumatology is not an easy specialty. It is a thinking man and woman's disease state. You have to, there is not, okay, if you have this diagnosis, you follow this, this, and this path. You have to take in all the complex medical history of these patients. Most of my patients have three chronic diagnoses. They're really medically complex patients. So when you have these pay-for-play physicians that have gone onto the dark side, to work for the insurance company. And you see in the article, they get paid by the denial. They get bonus by denying. Like it is so backwards. It is so harmful to the patients and the employers are paying the bill. I can show you receipts. Joe, you know, I like a receipt. I've had three appeal letters written on one case one time. And I literally had to take it in Sharpie market and write, can you read? and redact it and put it on Twitter because they don't even read the letters Dr. Bach dictates. They just deny them. And one of the things that I want people to realize, in the previous podcast, I was interviewing a doctor and he said that if a doctor who's not in the specialty made such a medical decision, they would lose their license. So not only do we have well, sometimes not even medical people necessarily reviewing the decisions. Even when those doctors do, they're not in the same specialty. So in theory, you could have a psychiatrist who's reviewing your rheumatology decision. And if a psychiatrist tried to practice rheumatology, a rheumatologist tried to practice psychology, they would, psychiatry, they would lose their license or could lose their license. 
And I know you don't have an answer to this question, but my comment is, it just infuriates me that we allow this to go on. Well, I certainly have a comment to it. Um, First of all, the psychiatrists are all the, all the really great ones are not even taking insurance anymore. Okay. I have multiple amazing psychiatric um, colleagues and they're like, yeah, forget it. I'm cash pay only. And they can do that because they are in such demand. So we would never really have a psychiatrist working for a, an insurance company unless they like, you know, got disbarred or something. But, you know, I love myself some Twitter and my Twitter friends. Um, I saw a redacted case not too long ago that had an insurance company denier team, an MD from the denial team. And that, um, that Twitter friend of mine went and looked up that Twitter doctor's um, history and he was, had multiple malpractice um, cases against him. He was a surgeon that we call, we now call him wrong hip guy because he put in the wrong hip joint on the left or the right side, whichever it was. So these are the kind of people that the insurance company is selling, is, has on their side, selling their signatures. Like, do no harm. It's horrid that these, these doctors are denying and getting bonus for it. So whether they're in the specialty or not, they can't find a rheumatologist that's willing to, to do that. Um, there's, the rheumatologists are, are in great demand like the psychiatrists too. I heard a statistic 50% of the rheumatologists are going to retire in the next five years. What? Okay, then what? I'm afraid for my children's children and your children's children, Joe. They're not going to have rheumatology care. Well, I've been doing this podcast for over four years now. And this won't surprise you, but some of the doctors are very frustrated because of the way our insurance system works. They can't practice medicine. You have all these doctors who are overriding their medical decisions. And while I don't have statistics, I would venture to say that most of the time, it's by doctors who are not in the same specialty. And why they're allowed to even override the medical decisions is beyond me. Well, I do have statistics. And it's I can tell you, in my seven years of doing this job, I have talked to uh, put together peer-to-peers of less, less than five rheumatologists in seven years that have been on the insurance company side that are doing a peer-to-peer. It is a peer-to-peer is a joke. It is not a discussion of the patient's clinical um, case. It is not, can we talk through this and see what would work for this patient? It is, and I have recordings. Uh, You know, I love receipts, Joe. I have doctor after doctor after doctor starting the call with, I have no ability to do anything but deny this, take it up on appeal. That's what it is. It's so bad that Dr. Bach is like, just start taking them all up on appeal because I'm tired of getting pulled out of a room to talk to these people. Well, I wish I could say that I'm surprised by this. I'm not. And we didn't discuss whether you support single payer Medicare for all, but After listening to you, it just makes me stronger in my desire for a single-payer healthcare system. And a lot of doctors I know support it so that they can practice medicine without interference, so they can treat their patients better. Traditional Medicare and a supplemental plan 
um, give patients the ability to choose their physicians, to choose their pharmacies, and it gives physicians the ability to practice medicine and what they are trained to do. You know, this all these Medicare disadvantage plans and all the commercial insurance, they want to be in charge and they want to direct the medical care. And it's not for altruistic reasons. It's because they are answering to shareholders. I answer to patients. They answer to shareholders. I am for Medicare for all as long as none of the big players, we don't need to mention names, are the single payer of choice. Well, I'm on Medicare and because of my doing this podcast, I knew that I wanted traditional Medicare with the Medicare supplement and that's what I have. And for me, it's been great. As you said, I get to choose my physicians. I don't have somebody denying care. And if I hadn't been doing this podcast, I might not have known all the problems with Medicare, as you put it, disadvantage. And I don't know how many people are aware of this. Certainly the people who listen to this podcast are. But right now, many of the Medicare disadvantage companies are being investigated for fraud. And there's evidence that they deny needed care, which is something that also goes on with regular health insurance. It's a bad situation. So excuse my rambling. Anyway, before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? So I just want to kind of tell you about my experience. Um, And I think that the insurance payers and the PBMs have geometrically progressed in the last 24 months of, of flexing their muscles even more. We see people on the ground doing the work. We're seeing every single thing get so much worse. And my patient population is about 50% Medicare, 50% commercial. But over the last two years, we've seen that 50% of Medicare traditional um, decrease by about 30%. So you're seeing more seniors be bamboozled into these Medicare disadvantage plans. They've got the ads, they've got zero premium, they've got all the bells and whistles. It's one thing if patients are healthy and Medicare disadvantage might work for them. Okay. But Joe, nothing's for free. If you're paying zero premium and these Medicare disadvantage plans are popping up all over the place, um, there's a reason for that. And Medicare disadvantage plans are typically paying the, the doctors doing the work. I, I saw a new cro- contract from um, MultiPlan that said, oh, here, sign up for our Medicare Advantage plan. And I looked at the contract and they wanted to pay my office 90% of Medicare allowable. Well, with the 2% reduction that we got on January 1st, that takes that down you know, to 88%. And then the 3% sequestration now I'm all of a sudden working, you know, for 85% of Medicare allowable. If I wasn't paying attention, I couldn't keep the lights on. I'm writing a check to serve Medicare disadvantage plans. Forget it. It's, it's unsustainable, unsustainable. And what I see is if you have Medicare traditional and a supplemental plan, you're going to pay about $1,000 more a year this year in 2023 than you would if you had a Medicare disadvantage plan. $1,000 is the delta there. But you know what? For a lot of patients, they don't have an extra $1,000 a year to do that. 
And so they carried in their choices of therapy plans, their choices of physician, their choices of pharmacy for essentially a plastic shoehorn with with an insurance company's logo on it because they get the catalog that they get to spend $35 every month from some junk store, okay? My parents did this. My parents don't have extra money. They thought it would be a great idea to do this. And guess what? They can't come to my office anymore. Well, the other thing that people miss is that if you get sick, you can end up paying more money with Medicare disadvantage between the co-pays and the co-insurance. So for my Medicare supplement, I did a plan G standard, which is the best. Now that has the higher premiums, but my deductible this year has been $226. Now I also have to pay a little bit for some medications I'm on, but basically my expenses are set. So it's like any insurance. It may seem good if you don't use it, but if you have any type of serious problem, you may discover that you would have saved money if you went on traditional Medicare with a Medigap plan. Two things I want to tell you about this. On Medicare Disadvantage plans, instead of having a secondary, you are the secondary, okay? So all unless you have twenty-eight dollars or $2,900 at the beginning of January for a chronic patient, that's what your secondary would have picked up. You are the secondary. Okay. And these patients are like, what? I've got to pay the first 2,900. You betcha you do. There's nothing for free. And the second thing is Medicare disadvantaged patients. If they get into these Medicare disadvantaged, they'll never make it back through underwriting to go back to traditional Medicare. And that is what these insurance companies are counting on. They have patients for life because they'll never, they'll have to die to get out of Medicare disadvantaged plans. Yes. People aren't aware that if you try to get back into traditional Medicare with a Medigap plan, that Medigap companies can do underwriting, which means they can reject you or they can charge much higher premiums. So if you end up having a serious medical problem, you can be really screwed. 100%. Well, Julie, as is often the case, I don't think it can get any worse. And I talked to a doctor or a practice manager. You're the first practice manager I've talked to. And I end up thinking, well, it's worse than I thought it would be. It keeps getting worse. And I just wish once that wouldn't happen. Well, I appreciate your enthusiasm and your hope. I mean, maybe direct contracting is the answer um, and picking out the insurance companies and the middleman PBMs um, and, you know, letting doctors do what they're so highly trained to do, which is provide amazing clinical care. Um, I appreciate your, your time, Joe. And if you want some other practice managers, I got a Rolodex that would knock your socks off. People would be happy to talk to you. I may take you up on that. And Julie, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. My pleasure, Joe. You have been listening to Medicare for all explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, MedicareForAllExplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.